Hello, my name is Nicole Noeliste, and today I'm so happy to share our fourth episode of the Ewok Spotlight series. Today's episode highlights Ms. Ruana Haynes. Ruana is a senior legal advisor of Climate Analytics. In that role, she supports small island states in climate change negotiations. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hello. Hi, good morning, Rowana. How are you? Hi, good morning. (laughs) How are you doing? You know, I woke up really sad knowing that you are in beautiful Trinidad. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go outside and clean black ice out of my garage. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I'm so sorry. (laughs) There's nothing like being at home in the Caribbean during Christmas. I hope you have a great holiday season. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, you know, COVID is still... COVID is still sort of a dampener on traditional Caribbean Christmas activities, right. but at least, yes, at least the beaches are, are open. So it's it's still an option. It's still an option. It's way better than cleaning black ice off of your <laughs> out of your garage first thing in the morning. <laughs> yes, my driveway is just full of black ice. But no, I was telling um, one of my colleagues that my favorite time and place is Kingston, Jamaica, or the Caribbean in general during Christmas season is just so much fun. All the parties, the food, the beach. Um, so I hope you get to have some time to socially distance on the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm I'm leaving. I'm going to my parents live in Tobago, so I'm going over to Tobago next Wednesday. Oh. And I'll spend Christmas and New Year there. So I will definitely be on the beach. <laughs> Oh, that's fabulous. I've heard great things about Tobago. This is just a beautiful island. Um, so that's awesome. And I wanted to be cognizant of your time. And just thank you for joining us um, for our Spotlight series. We're so excited to have you, especially with all of the um, changes in the state with the administration, um, with President-elect Biden. Yes. Um, we do think there's going to be, you know, a considerable focus on climate change. Yeah. Um, and I'm just so happy with the timing of your interview and just what you're doing. Um, just to let you know, when I heard about you, I heard about you from Martin Bird, who is from Barbados and based in Toronto. And I was like, who is this Caribbean superwoman who's doing this type of work? So I'm just so excited to talk to you today about some strategies for navigating your career thus far in the climate negotiation um, field. Okay. Oh, I, I didn't know the Martin connection. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He was like, you have to talk to Ruana. She's dope. She's amazing. And he definitely was right. So thank you for the plug, Martin. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll definitely message him after this. He didn't tell me. He's so sneaky. Um... <laughs> um, yeah. No. So I'll get yeah no great I was just gonna say thanks that's that's a really nice um overview and introduction and it's really definitely a pleasure thank you so I'll get started so we have nine questions today you know that we ask distinguished women who have done an amazing job in the environmental field which is a small feat so just for starters what led you to pursue a career in the environmental field I I think um 
as a child, I was always very concerned about environmental issues. Well, two things. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I learned to talk, I was opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I always tended toward, um, well, being hyper-vocal. All of my primary school teachers said, you know, Rana's a great student, but she is too talkative. Um, <laughs> so when I was seven years old, I remember announcing to my my teacher that I was going to be a lawyer. Oh, wow. And, I love that vision. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very interesting. And um, so then added to that, where I live in Trinidad, where I grew up, mm-hmm. uh, we had a, a perennial flooding problem. Uh, so mm, okay. every... Every wet season, every rainy season, every August, um, you know, the area, the entire area would flood. I would lose precious books. I was really into books. It would upset me greatly. Um, losing wow. precious books to floodwaters, you know, ruining furniture, ruining, you know, things. It was, it was really bad and it was, it was unpredictable. And as I, as I was growing up, it, it got worse. Uh, and I remember when I found out why it flooded, and the reason why it flooded is because the actual drainage system was clogged with a litter because mm. people were throwing their garbage into the drains, clogging the drains and, right. and causing me to lose my books. That was the, that was the connection that, that I made yeah. in my mind. It was a very direct connection. I remember from that day on, um, my friends used to call me uh, Captain Planet because... <laughs> Uh, no one could litter in my presence. No one could litter in my presence. I remember I would walk up to complete strangers if they had thrown something on the street and take them to task. Like, how dare you? Do you know where the litter is going to go? If I saw litter on the street, I would pick it up. Like, I was really, yeah, that I, I think. Um, so I've always sort of had that conviction that you know, littering is wrong and the, the natural environment needs to be preserved and protected. And um, in my family, uh, an appreciation for the natural environment was really instilled in all of us from a very young age. Okay. I love that. I love, and is your family, is everyone from Trinidad and Tobago born and bred? Or no. Do you have different islands? Different islands, different islands. It's, it's quite a spread actually, um, mm-hmm. because my dad is Jamaican. Well, you see, I knew that's why you're so great. You have the Jamaican blood. Now we're making, we're making sense now. We're making sense now. Yes. Yes, my dad is Jamaican. Um, my mother was born in Trinidad, but my grandmother is actually from Tobago, and my grandfather okay. and my mother's side is from Barbados. Um, that's beautiful. I'm the same way. My mom is from Cuba. My dad is from Haiti, and I was born in Jamaica. So I was mix of. The oh islands. wow, that's, that's incredible! Yeah. That's mm-hmm. such a, that's <laughs> such an amazing heritage to have. Yeah, so I'm very grateful. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a a bit of a mix as well. So I have a question. So this flooding um, season, did it coincide with hurricane yes. season, or was this a separate? Okay, yes, yes, got it. it. Did. So you had more more rain and then the little caused the drainage the drainage to um be blocked so that's a terrible combination yes. um okay that that's a great that's a great story as to why you started in this field um so what values or principles do you most closely associate with a successful environmental attorney or negotiator or climate advocate advocate uh well 
I would say there's 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 a range of things. I, I think um for me it's really important. It's it's really important to be able to explain issues in a way that people can understand. A, a lot right. of my work in the climate negotiation process has sort of been bridge building work, um, sort of standing at the, I guess, at the juncture of the science and the politics. And right. you would right. be surprised. I mean, you think that, you know, this process, which is a, a science policy based process, the climate change negotiations, and I guess all environmental issues, it comes down to the science at the end of the day. And it's been right. going on for so long. You know, we've had more than 30 years of, of the Rio Conventions, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Biodiversity Convention. We've had more than 30 years of these conventions. You would think that by now, scientists and policymakers would be able to speak to each other in ways that they can mutually understand. But that is not the case. Right. <laughs> right. It, it really isn't. And so... Um, a lot of my job when I first started uh, doing this work uh, was sort of um, being able to to take to speak with colleagues in my organization who are scientists essentially, and being able to take their conclusions and uh, articulate them in a way that uh, made sense for the political discussion and, and in a way that was impactful for the political discussion. And, and that's, I think, once you're working in this sort of field, even though you know, you're approaching it from a legal perspective or from a political perspective, um, because it's environment, because it's always going to be based sort of in scientific facts and understanding, you have to be able to, mm -hmm. you have to have that facility. Otherwise, um, yeah, otherwise it's it's very difficult to get anything agreed if it's not well understood. So I would say that's one of the key, key um yeah, one of one of the key traits that that you'd need to possess. That's very insightful. And so how do you switch between okay, I want to make this as digestible and as understand comprehensible as possible to the science folks? But I'm guessing your gear is a bit different when you're talking to the public. Yeah. So how do you really navigate those two audiences, which are important for the work that you do, right? You need the scientists to understand where you're coming from and to understand them. But you need the public to understand the, the issue and the gravity of it. So how do you really navigate between those two audiences? Yeah, well, it comes down to needs, I think. It, it comes down to needs because... In, in speaking to the scientists, you know, from a from an island perspective, it's about articulating mm -hmm. to them um, what kind of information we would need that's most valuable for us to understand, which is not always right, clear to right. scientists because scientists take an approach where it's more, you know, they're more into their very specific subject matter, and they may right. not really, unless it's brought to their attention, they may not really be able to contextualize it for a particular audience. So for example, in right. looking at climate right. impacts, right. we would want them to focus in exactly on, on the issues that are really important for us, like will our coral reefs survive? You know, um, right. how can we, how can we, is there any way that the modeling can, can predict um, sea level rise? 
Is there modeling that can be scaled down so we understand which of our coasts need protecting first um, or how high we should build a seawall? You know, so it's, it's that type of inquiry uh, when it comes to expressing needs. And I think it goes the same way in terms of the public as well, because what the public needs to understand is, I think, how um, their, well, how their lifestyles and actions sort of interact with what is going on around them in terms of the natural environment as a result of climate change. Um, so, for right. example, right. in the Caribbean, in many Caribbean countries, uh, we have had and continue to experience a worsening situation with drought and water stress, which is which is a really crazy mm -hmm. situation for land masses that are surrounded yeah. by seawater. <laughs> right. Right. So right. it's um and right. it's going to get worse under under um most warming scenarios. And so, you know, right. in terms of um for example, the government wanting to push sort of a water conservation type of policy, um, you know, based mm -hmm. on that awareness that you know, the water stress is going to increase as time goes by. Uh, so making that connection uh, to the public there uh, so that people would understand how they might need to modify their behavior to take into account these sorts of impacts. So it, I think I would say it comes down to to the particular need in question. Um, yeah. Right. Right, that's a, that's a great, that's a great insight. So thank you. Um, so you... <laughs> have a very amazing and interesting role in working in this climate change negotiation space um, as a Black woman from the Caribbean, a small island state. Um, how have you dealt with anyone underestimating you or judging you based on your race or gender? And I also want to add, I know you studied at Georgetown in DC and you studied in Paris, which is just amazing. Um, in terms of your scholastic achievements, but in any of these spaces, whether it is in school or in your current role or your past roles, how have you really dealt with that? Uh, it's it's my secret superpower. <laughs> I I love when people underestimate me. <laughs> based on based on my gender, based on based on my race. Um I I really, it, it always creates an opportunity for me to get exactly what I want. <laughs> Interesting. I need to delve in, I need to flesh this out. This is, these are tips. <laughs> because the thing is, the thing is, when, when, when people underestimate you, it, it tells you more mm -hmm. about them. And it, it gives you insight into their expectations of you and right. provides an avenue for you to use those expectations that they have of you against them. I'm giving away my trade secrets. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no. So, so, so for example, because it, it provides an, it, it provides an opportunity it provides an opportunity, which, um, which I would say, in addition to be able, being able to, to sort of uh, play that bridging role in terms of the science and the policy, I think the, the second key things, key skill that you need to have in this space is the ability to really listen. 
um, right, to right. really listen actively. And when people underestimate you, at least what I've found, when people underestimate me, it makes them more comfortable in what they see. Because yes. they don't, right. they, 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 they don't, you know, they don't really think that you're in a position, um, you're in a position, I guess, to make the most of the situation and they be, they, their attitude is different. And as a result of the underestimation, if you are able to listen to them a bit more, it really provides you with a lot of information that you would not otherwise have had if that person were right, looking at right. you as their equal. Right. Wow, this is very insightful. Right. And so <laughs> and so because yeah. you are armed with the knowledge of how they think you're going to behave, it then becomes a question of simply taking advantage of the situation when it allows in order to guide them down the path that you want them to go. Wow. And then this strategy, which seems very effective, um, did you really sharpen this when you were outside of the Caribbean in more non-African space, non-Afro-Caribbean spaces such as DC or Paris? Or was it something that you've um, fostered since being you know, post-secondary school. Well, I mean, Trinidad. to be fair, as a and you would know this as a black woman, um, this is this is something that you face everywhere you are. It you know, it's not right. specific to 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 spaces where there may be less people of color. It's not specific at all because then you're still a woman, right? So right. it's still right. it's right. still going right. to happen right. in some form or the other. Yeah. And for me, you know, yeah. it's it's always I'm always disappointed of it when it happens, but again, still always ready to to be able to take full advantage of it. Of course, many times once you've demonstrated, <laughs> once once people realize what has happened, um, the approach to you <laughs> becomes very different. <laughs> So right, it's, it's right. something you can no, only that. really use once in a sense, but uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that one, sometimes that one chance is all you really need. Right, that's great. I love that answer. I haven't gotten that answer yet on that question, so I love it. <laughs> um, so you know, no one yeah. goes this alone, right? Um, who are your mentors and sponsors and how did you choose and find them? Oh, yeah. They were sent to me. Um, oh. That's what I would say. I, I, <laughs> I haven't really, I haven't really sort of actively um, designed my life to, to be where I am now. Okay. So, so that's why I would say in terms okay. of mentors and sponsors, they were definitely sent my way. Um, so I would say, huh, uh, well, first of all, first of all, I had I had my aunt at at home, who mm -hmm. really was for me the epitome of a, a beautiful black professional woman who you know, sort of owned her, her space and owned her her role. She was a teacher. Um, she, she teaches sciences, mm -hmm. incidentally. Um, 
And she sort of exemplified for me what a what a professional woman looks like in terms of what she projects right. and how she right. would walk into the room and these sorts right. of things. Uh, she's always very, very right. together. And um and I think I took right. that from her. Right. It's it's a it's a general thing with women in my family, but my aunt really exemplified it. Uh, in terms of my professional path, we have had a couple of great, great mentors um, uh, from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. of course. Um, you know, we love, we love to tell mm-hmm. stories and um, we <laughs> teach through storytelling. So entering the negotiation process, um, you know, the Caribbean, the, the persons from the Caribbean who've been involved in the process, um, since the days of its inception, uh, since the since 1992, <laughs> um, they were all you know these older men generally, and they would always you know we right. go to the sessions, we go to the meetings, but then we might have dinner afterwards, and they would always regale us with all of the stories of you know all of the background of how this came about what this person said what this person did and honestly I learned so much I learned so much just from that sort of very I want to call it a a Caribbean sort of Afro-Caribbean traditional approach to imparting knowledge so we'd sit in a group it was like a group learning exercise and they would just these stories and so you know there are a number of them that would have done that. So like um, Mr. Carlos Fuller, who works with the Five Seas in Belize, Kishan Kumar Singh, who works with the Ministry mm-hmm. of Environment in Trinidad and Tobago, Leon Charles from Grenada. Um, these are sort of my mentors. I always joke and because in the process, we have people who are dinosaurs. <laughs> we call them dinosaurs because they've been there so long. <laughs> um, but I always joke and say, well, no, I'm a baby dinosaur because, you know, <laughs> oh, I, I love have, that. I, love I have that. my oh, own gosh. sort of decade of experience, <laughs> but also that decade of experience is very much informed by their two decades of experience. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you know what? I love that you mentioned the aunties, right? Because that resonates so much with me. Like when I think of a professional Black woman who shaped, you know, my ideas of what a black lawyer looks like it was my aunties growing up they were always well yep. closer always pressed they always had you know good staff yep. spoke well good posture just handled themselves very well and that really informed the type of woman I wanted to be so thank you for noting that because that's definitely true across many Afro-Caribbean families yeah or yeah. I think so at least um so you mentioned some of the people that have helped you along the way. You mentioned their sponsors, and that's a that's very important. But in terms of your close peers, mm-hmm. your close friends, your colleagues, how do you and your close peers and colleagues work to support mm-hmm. and champion mm-hmm. one another? Uh, well, my attitude is always um, one where we are better together and stronger together. So when I was in New York, I was in New York for six years at the UN, where I was um, a part of the team that was there representing Trinidad and Tobago. And so everything about being a diplomat is is extraordinarily similar Mm -hmm. to being a soldier sent into battle. 
um, we even call it when mm. you're when you're posted abroad for your country, we call it being sent on tour. Uh, you have no idea how similar it is oh, to wow. being in the army. <laughs> I, wow. I yeah, it's a very, that. I mean, you know, people have this image of diplomats being, you know, just, um, I guess, um, people who go to cocktails and, and drink tea with their pinky finger out. But it's, 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 it's that's, that's right. just a facade. It's really a, a, a lot more, it gets rough <laughs> once you feel back the first layer. And so, um, it, it can be a very isolating experience. Uh, it's one where you're posted and your first family would be those at the mission with you from your own country. And we work very much in a, in a team. You know, most Caribbean countries, most small countries at the UN, um, most missions don't have more than mm-hmm. five people. And even that's a lot. We, at one point, we had five or six diplomats and we had one of the largest missions in the, in the Caribbean. Uh, whereas and then you have a country like China, they have 100 diplomats at the UN. So just to give you an oh idea <laughs> of the scale. And, you know, wow. there's enough work happening at the UN to keep those 100 diplomats very busy. So you can imagine right. what it's like if you have a mission of two right. or three or five. And so it was very much about, you know, supporting each other through it all. So that was your first family. And your second family was then your CARICOM family. Um, Because we all had small missions, we tended to coordinate closely. We tended to support each other a lot. If there was one issue that one country had someone in the room covering, it meant that everybody else could benefit from that. And so um, my training has always very much been that it's much better to go together um, and maybe go slower than to go alone. Uh, so exactly. Right. So so it's 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 really yeah. just always been about trying to ensure that at the end of the day, the job is done, uh, and we share the burden while doing right. it. And Rowana, for those who don't know what CARICOM is, can you give us a small sure. synopsis, short synopsis? Sure. So CARICOM really, um, it stands for the Caribbean Community. So it's the 14 independent countries of the English-speaking Caribbean uh, who have formed, it's, um, it's not like the European Union in the sense that uh, it's an intergovernmental grouping of countries and not... Uh, the EU approach, which is more along the lines of a of a of a federal level grouping of countries where they have independent institutions, all of the Caribbean community institutions are right. intergovernmental in scope, which means our governments are constantly meeting together to, you know, coordinate policy, to share ideas, and to and to sort of plan for the region. But then it's up to each government in terms of what they then do do domestically implement it no that's that's a great 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 synopsis thank you um so you've had an amazing career like really a career that an environmental lawyer advocate um, specialist can dream of you've worked in new york um you're back in the caribbean now you've been trained in europe and washington dc um so i'm sure you may not have <laughs> too much to say for this question but just to ask you um, if you could do one thing over in your career, what would it be and why? Yeah, this is um, a really interesting question. Um, I really can't say. I, I don't think, honestly, honestly, Nicole, I don't think I would 
She's like, anything different. Uh, I, I, what I will say uh, is that, um, yeah, my approach is that at every stage in my career, I was always placed exactly mm-hmm. where I needed to be at the time I needed to be there. And so when I finished law school, I didn't go into a traditional legal mm-hmm. um, profession. I opted to go into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and right. at that precise time, um, Barack Obama had just been elected. Um, and Trinidad Tobago mm-hmm. was hosting two major international meetings. And one of them would be the first meeting, Barack Obama's first official international meeting as president of the United States. It was the fifth summit of the Americas and it happened in April, 2009. And um, awesome. and so I... I appeared in the ministry right at that time when the world was preparing for this major climate conference at the end of that year, the Copenhagen conference, which should have produced uh, what eventually became the Paris Agreement, which we didn't get till 2015. And so climate change was the big issue at that meeting, the Fifth Summit of the Americas, and then at the second international meeting that Trinidad and Tobago hosted that year, which was the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which was another major meeting, 53 countries from all over the um, the former British Empire, which constitutes the Commonwealth. And you mm-hmm. know it was the last major international right. meeting before the climate conference that year. And so it was all about climate change. So when I started in the ministry, um, my director told me, this is the issue that I want you to address. So literally, as soon as I got there, mm-hmm. I was dealing with the biggest issue of the day. I was advising the minister directly, which was unheard of for, for a, a, such a junior officer at the time. And Right. Um, <laughs> so this is, I think, would be a tough question or just an interesting question. So you're situated in the Caribbean, you know, you help represent small island states. Um, A lot of the climate effects or the causes of climate effects are coming from developed nations, allegedly. So how do you stay abreast of current news trends and developments in your field? Because I'm guessing you have to stay abreast at the country level at the Caribbean level, the regional level, the small island state level globally, and then you also have to keep um, abreast of what's going on in the developed countries such as the US, you know, the EU, etc. So how do you keep abreast of all those different streams of information? Yeah, I mean, it's job? um, it's quite a process, yeah? It, it means I'm constantly reading. <laughs> That's that's what it means. It means right, um, right. Whereas most people use social media socially, I use social media for it. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you know, when I'm when I'm scrolling, I'm I'm also <laughs> digesting uh, news constantly coming from right. you know global. Uh, civil society organizations that are that are sort of synthesizing and, and highlighting and spotlighting certain things, uh, UN agencies, um, not-for-profit organizations that are also spotlighting particular issues. So so it means, um, so of course, in, in my job, right. a lot of this comes across my desk. You know, the information is always there. 
but it's it's sometimes that that I think is insufficient. It, it, for me to keep abreast of what's going on, it, it really just is a lifestyle now. It's it's completely a lifestyle. Like you know, all of my feeds across Facebook. I still use Facebook, <laughs> um, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> uh, LinkedIn. It's it's really sort of dominated by news coming out of of any international organization or civil society group or organization or individual that's involved in that type of work so so yeah there's an active and, a, and also a passive right. sort of approach to, to being able to stay on top of it and, and right. I, I don't think that I'm on top of everything at all um but i i do try to to actively and passively uh track trends Right. No, I imagine that's important. And then, just from my knowledge, are there a lot of climate shops, you know, doing climate policy work, separate from the ministries, of course, in the Caribbean? In the Caribbean, like, are we, are you seeing, uh, you know, more climate shops um, popping up um, in the um, Caribbean? I guess. There, or do you have, like, a few main... There are a few... There are a few uh, in this space, but because of because of how the issues sort of play out at this level in the region mm-hmm. in islands, uh, there there aren't any that mm-hmm. I know of that are specifically dedicated to climate. So of course there you know there's a lot of That's renewable it. energy outfits you know, that are dealing with the energy aspect of things. But then, for example, at least in Trinidad, then there's right. like, um, there's, a, there's a Fisherman's Association that's very active on issues related to climate. There are community-based organizations that deal with, um, that deal with preservation of nature trails that have to address climate in the context of um, forest fires that that break out more and more severely and frequently during the dry season because of um, you know increase in global temperature. So yeah, it's 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 very much done at a more community based and issue based level because that's the level at which you know people understand it. Sense. Climate change in the Caribbean, I think, is still um, in a sense at the highest level. It's still a little bit distant, but mm-hmm. it's only distant conceptually. The reality yeah. is people are dealing with it daily, yeah. but but through through a different name, right. through different avenues. Right. So it's fishermen, it's it's you know, it's nature right. preservation, it's it's bird sanctuary, right. um, it's different things. It's it's um, right. the people who are doing coral reef rehabilitation, it's yeah. it's so many different things. Right. And then that's like gr- this is such a great I'm so happy you had time to talk to me but you know that's that's really great insight um but do you think there's a negative of not defining it as a more holistic issue like you know because you have these piecemeal or just these sub issues of course the Caribbean largely depends on you know the climate to be steady and to to not have these um changes that we're seeing and we think we'll see in the future so do you think there is some sort of con or negative for not defining it holistically as climate change and really dealing with these sub issues as they, as they yeah are. I would say I would say there definitely are some risks there's some risks to that because um, 
-hmm. it's really the responsibility of governments to sort of pull all of this together into a broader narrative on climate change, right? And and right. to tailor policy right. and right. messaging and education uh, to help people to, to bring right. it together, to help people to understand that this is all part of a larger phenomenon. And by and large, governments in the region have not been very effective at doing that. And that right. in itself creates a risk for when the time comes that they have to, you know, make some policy choices that involve very, very um, critical trade-offs uh, between issues. It, it creates a risk that at that stage, there'll be a lot of negative blowback because the work hasn't been done to sort of paint the overall picture for people to understand. Now, that's not to say that there isn't an awareness. There's definitely an awareness, but it's it's um, it's way too bottom up at this stage. And because it's bottom up, it's fragmented. Um, there needs to be more of a top down approach. Right. And um, I hope that governments can can right. accelerate their efforts on that sooner rather than later. Yeah. yeah, this is so interesting. Um, and you know, so I went to high school in Jamaica. I did Caribbean geography for CXC, and we would study like some of the issues affecting marshlands and some of the you know hurricanes becoming intensified. But it was never characterized as climate change. Granted, I went to school in the early two thousands, so um, you know maybe there wasn't that much of a phenomenon. People aren't talking about it as much, but. I do think there is some danger in compartmentalizing these issues and not having the public recognize there's a, a bigger issue going on here and how do we tackle this issue from all fronts. I do think there is benefit, though, to the bottoms down, the grassroots approach, right? Because I do think it's kind of best to empower the people who are most affected by the specific change in how to, to deal with the change. But I agree that there needs to be some government level direction as to how we're going to, in a unified manner, really tackle these pressing issues for the region. Because climate issues are going to affect the Caribbean in ways that I will not be affected, you know, in middle America. So, yeah, that, no, that's, definitely, that's definitely agree. There's there's great value in the in the grassroots mobilization. But yeah, that that top down piece is yeah. definitely missing and needs to needs to materialize it 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 is right. happening but too slowly in my estimation right so it'd be a dual like a two parts approach you'd have the grassroots level informing what would be most effective at the com community level to deal with the issue then you'd have maybe some funds and some directives from the government is that what you kind of envision in terms of more government involvement or what do you think would be most effective yeah well it's it's top, what you've described but you as part of as part of a broader national policy right so if at the global level governments are advocating for um they're advocating for accelerated climate action uh which means you know all countries have right. to 
take up more ambitious mitigation commitments in line with what the science says. It also means that more climate finance needs to be mobilized to assist smaller, poorer countries to be able to respond. And a part of that mobilization is redirecting investment to the right areas. And so if there is to be this massive global mobilization in that direction, as small countries that are very vulnerable to anything happening on the outside, right? The the terminology uses vulnerable to exogenous shocks, right? Um, It means then that even looking at our economies as a whole, there needs to be a, a complete revamp and a preparation to be able to to not um to be able to to put ourselves in a position to take advantage of that change and not have to be in a in a reactionary role and if you don't have the guiding right, policy right, right. overall national policy to facilitate that then we will be stuck reacting and and our economies will suffer as a result right right no, I def- that's that's great insight. Um, so moving on to the next question, Rowan, after I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, so what do you see as the dominant trait in your personality? We've touched on some of the traits that, you know, you've discussed, but what's the dominant trait and how has that impacted uh, your career? Yeah, this is a, a really interesting question because I've never sort of analyzed my personality uh, in a way that I could identify <laughs> a specific dominant trait. Uh, but I will say that um, I really value, I, I value collaboration, I guess. Um, my, my view in, in sort of everything that I do in, in life is that individually, each of us has a particular skill sets and a particular set of talents and those talents they don't exist in isolation they exist because they form part of a greater whole Mm. where you know they can really be used to their advantage so i've i've always sort of subscribed to that idea that once you get into sort of a group setting that's that's sort of the ideal um environment for people to really be able to create an impact and really be able to to grow so yeah i guess i guess um collaboration the value of the collaborative approach no that's great yeah no that that's great that's great so important um so our last question, unfortunately, I have to let you go to the beautiful beaches of Tobago. But um, what accomplishments are you most proud of? You've done so much um, to be proud of, but what do you identify as the accomplishment that, that you're I'm most, most proud, proud of? of. Yes. <laughs> this is so hard to pin down, Nicole. <laughs> Not mainly because... <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because um, because I never see myself as an individual actor, right? Um, mainly because I always see my role in the context of a group effort. So it's 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 very hard to pin down. But um, I would I... say, uh, in the context of my work, 
Um, I'm really proud of having been a part of the process that showcased the importance of climate science to the world. And um, to get a little bit more specific on that, in 2018, um, the Intergovernmental Mm -hmm. Panel on Climate Change prepared a report um, called the Special Report on 1.5 Degrees Celsius. So island countries have been for a very long time arguing that we need to limit the average increase in global temperatures to about 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We can't go further than that. Our societies will not survive. And for a very long time, the rest of the global community was ignoring us. (laughs) Um, Eventually, this became, this goal, this guardrail, became part of the Paris Agreement that was agreed in 2015, and a request was made for a report to be issued on what exactly the impacts are going to be like, even with that amount of warming, and how exactly can we get there? Because a number of, you know, specialists, well, advisors, countries in general, scoffed at the idea because they said it's, that is impossible. It, it, will, it will cripple our economies if we have to get onto that sort of stringent mitigation pathway. And so the report was commissioned and came in 2018 um, and then um, sort of presented to the UN process that requested the report in the first place. And when it got to the process, there are a number of countries who said, well, okay, that's all well and fine, but um, we are not in a position to welcome this report you know, we don't think that it should become a formal part of the process. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be in a plenary, you know, so this is the the 180 something plus countries. We're all in a room, a huge room. The press is there. It's an open plenary. And we're talking about, you know, how do we take account of this report and, there were a number of countries who were saying, well, mm-hmm. no, we don't think the report should be a formal part of the process. And then um, there were countries led by island states taking the floor to say, we need to welcome the report. The report needs to be a part of the formal process. And there was this sort of cascade of, of interventions um, sort of demanding that uh, the chair of the meeting continued to be ambivalent and was trending on 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 the side of saying well you know there's no consensus here because some countries don't want it and i remember i made the last intervention Mm -hmm. um in that session uh basically to say you know this is Mm -hmm. this is not about whether or not we welcome or or note the report, we've asked for this report. The report is important and it is bizarre that as the organization that commissioned requested a report that now we do not want to take it into our own deliberations. And as the last intervention, I, I, I'm not sure the building on the mood in the room um, there was this huge acclamation of applause, media went crazy, 
all of the reports the next day were talking about, you know, how island countries were pushing for this report. And it really sort of elevated an issue that was more in the realm of the science to one that was able to sort of capture the imagination of then youth movements worldwide. And now we've seen the emergence of so many youth movements and youth climate activists and youth strikes who have all rallied around this idea that we must believe the science. We must believe the science. And to have been a part of that was just really... I guess it's really, um, it still blows my mind. It's it's really gratifying for me. Oh, <laughs> no, that sounds like a great experience. And just to touch base on um, the climate negotiations, what do you expect for Glasgow? I, I understand that the next COP meeting is in Scotland, um, November 2021. Um, how are you preparing for that? And, you know, what do you see as the U.S.'s role um, in that meeting? Um, and well, there are a lot of expectations from the, from the administration. new administration. <laughs> uh, it's great that the president-elect <laughs> has said that the U.S. is, is going to be back in on, on January 21st, is it? Um, yes, yeah, so the day after. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so that's great news, first of all, <laughs> um, because, you know, the U.S. is in number two global emitter in the world so a global agreement to address climate change um really falters without their participation um but there are a lot of expectations for the u.s um i think in the first place there's a lot of ground for the current administration to cover to sort of address um the fact that for the past four years uh the u.s has not been living up to its role as uh as a major emitter and as a as you know the largest economy in the in the world. Um so we expect that the US will make good on the climate finance commitments, for example, that were made under the Obama administration, uh, that were only honored in part. So that's mm-hmm. I think sort of from the developing country perspective, that's sort of the first thing. Um, There's been a major shortfall in U.S. contributions to climate finance. Um, The U.S. has also, um, they they need to show the world that they are serious in terms of their return. It's not just a matter of, yes, we're back and and that's it. (laughs) The rest of the world has been working on uh, new commitments to cover the period from now until 2030, which is going to be an extraordinarily critical period for what happens uh, in the next, I guess, 50 or so years. It's it's going to be it's going to determine the the extent of warming that we'll experience out to the end of the century. And so the rest of the world has been working on plans and commitments for the 2030 period, as well as longer term plans and commitments for 2050. So we'd expect the U.S. coming back in to really show some leadership in undertaking some very ambitious plans and commitments along those lines. And and as far as I've seen from um, the president-elect's climate and energy portfolio, uh, there seems to be enough in the way of um, 
policies and measures that 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 could get that could get to that point uh, that could put the US in a position to be able to make those commitments internationally. So we're really looking forward to that. Aside from that, um, there's a, a very specific rule that only the US can play in 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 international negotiations, really. Uh, without their participation, you see a number of countries sort of say, well, you know, well, what's the point? It's never going to work anyway. I don't need to do anything because the U.S. isn't a part of it. And so mm -hmm. we expect that the cooling effect that would have occurred when it was announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing would now be reversed uh, because their participation now really shines a light on those who were sort of hanging back, waiting to see what's happening. And um, the U.S. under the Obama administration really really um, played a key role in terms of their climate diplomacy in basically speaking to almost every country in the world to sort of make sure they were on board with the Paris Agreement to make sure that they had all made commitments. And we need to see some of that type of mobilization happening again, but also, you know, based on what the U.S. is also prepared to do domestically and announce internationally. So for COP, 26, which is the COP that's going to be happening in Glasgow next year, what we really need is for the rubber to hit the road on Paris Agreement implementation, on sort of locking in um, country commitments out to 2030 mm -hmm. and 2050 in line with the Paris Agreement goals. Um, we need countries to come to the table basically saying, okay, now is the time. We are ready. Let's do this. Very helpful. And if our listeners want to follow the work that you're doing at your organization or just independently, what's the best way for them to follow your work? Mm, well, um, I work with um, a couple of different organizations. I mm -hmm. guess the best way for, for people to follow my work would be through uh, Twitter, through mm -hmm. LinkedIn, or mm -hmm. uh, also through Instagram. Um, oh, I have public profiles on all of those okay. platforms, and um, and yeah, you can follow me there at Ruana Haynes. That's that's usually my handle. Awesome. Well, Ruana, this has been really inspiring, um, very timely, and I thank you so much for spending this hour with us. And we definitely are looking forward to what you will accomplish through your organizations and independently between now and <laughs> COP26. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, Nicole. Yeah, it's a long road ahead to COP26. And so let's see what happens for 2021. It's definitely been a great pleasure talking to you. Keep up the fantastic work that you're doing. And I wish you all the best with this crazy snowstorm that's happening on the East Coast. <laughs> and um, happy holidays. <laughs> Thank you. Same here. Bye, Rana. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care.